This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. We would love to have you join us at one of our church services on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Today's episode features a speech from a 2022 family conference hosted by the British Reformed Fellowship, the topic of which was union with Jesus Christ. We hope you are edified by this content. When I was assigned the topic of union with Christ and the antithesis, two questions immediately came to my mind. The first is, how will I approach this subject? And secondly, what will my applications be? As far as approach goes, I did not want to consider this topic from the ordinary personal perspective and look at the doctrine of the antithesis and how it plays out in our own personal individual life. But because the theme is union with Christ, and that puts all of us together in Christ, I wanted to look at the antithesis from the big picture perspective and look at it in terms of the kingdom of Jesus Christ versus the kingdom of man and Satan. And therefore, I've chosen Daniel chapter 2 which presents the antithesis between the kingdoms of God and man by means of that unforgettable visual which will become even more memorable tonight. A great image and a stone. But then secondly, I had to determine where I would go with my applications and that raised the question, what are the necessary, timely, urgent, applications that the church of Jesus Christ must hear in the year of our Lord 2022 right here right now and I thought of many of the subjects that are commonly addressed in the preaching our use of technology entertainment life in the university politics and how we live in the nation-state Dating, parenting, the tongue, the sexual revolution and transgenderism and all of the rest. But after very careful and very prayerful consideration, I came to the conviction that I cannot squander this opportunity that has been given me by God tonight. And therefore, I want to address one issue. And it's the, the issue of sexual abuse. From one point of view, I do not want to touch this topic because it's very dark and it's very serious. And the form thereof is terrible, to use the language of Daniel 2. And furthermore, I weighed whether this is too serious and too weighty a subject for a delightful conference like this, and I really struggled with that. Moreover, I really wrestled and, in fact, actually broke out into sweat multiple times in my study over whether or not it's appropriate for me to address this kind of subject with you when you don't have any forewarning. And you don't know what's coming. It's not advertised. And now here you are and you're, you're not prepared for this. I struggled. I wrestled. I do not want to hurt anyone. 
I don't know very much about many of you. So I wrestled and wrestled and prayed. But I became convinced that in the day in which we're living right now, if God gives me this opportunity for a public lecture on the doctrine of the antithesis, and I don't take up this subject, I'm going to live with very deep regret. I hope you will understand, and if you know nothing about the subject, you will begin to come to understand something about its importance. Professor Engelsma and I did not confer with regard to the subjects of our lectures this morning. I only learned a week before the week before I left for this conference in a conversation with him that he was planning on addressing spousal abuse this morning. We didn't plan this together. He was of the conviction on his own to address what he did this morning. Became my conviction to address this this evening. Neither of us will address at this conference another form of abuse that is widespread and it's receiving increasing attention in a growing body of secular and Christian literature, and that is what is called spiritual abuse perpetrated by narcissistic, antagonistic, grandiose ecclesiastical bullies in church office. It's a huge problem. Abuse. Abuse of all kinds is rampant everywhere. And both of the speakers came to the conviction that this subject is necessary to address. And now I want to say a number of things this evening and do that as carefully as I can. Let's begin with the doctrine and lay a foundation that we will use through the speech from Daniel chapter 2. So what I want to do is explain the doctrine of the antithesis in union with Christ in light of the visual of the king's dream. Let's imagine as if this image and this stone were, were actual, they were real, not just in a dream. So first of all, of the two things, we have this image. It was the image, a statue of a man. The head was of gold. The chest and the arms were of silver. And the belly and the thighs were of brass. And the legs were of iron. And the feet were of iron and clay. And it was a great statue, according to verse 31. It was enormous. Now, we're not told anything about the measurements, but... If we look at chapter 3, there was an image that stood 60 cubits, that is 90 feet tall, roughly the, the height of a nine-story building. This image is enormous. Not only that, it was dazzling, whose brightness was excellent, says verse 31. In fact, the statue was so big and so bright that it inspired terror. So that verse 31 says the form thereof was terrible. So you can imagine this imposing statute and image of a man. And then there's the stone. There was a mountain and a stone was cut out of that mountain without hands. That is, there was no human agency involved. And the stone came and it smote the image. Now some people say this, it was in a dream. Some people say the stone fell upon the feet I have always had in my mind the visual of a mountain and the stone cut out and the stone rolling down and accelerating toward 
the image and striking it in the feet. And the text says that the whole thing was broken to pieces together. All the material disintegrated so that it became like the chaff that was carried away by the wind. In verse 35, there was no place no place was found for them. And then that stone became this great mountain that filled the whole earth. You know that. Daniel 2 is familiar. We have the image. We have the stone. And now that's, let's explain the image. It represents all of the kingdoms of man as they stand up to and against God and His people in history. If we compare Daniel chapter two verses Daniel chapter two verse chapter two with chapters seven and eight, we know that the various materials represent different successive historical kingdoms, from Babylon as the head of gold to the chest and arms of silver, which is the kingdom of Medo Persia, to the belly and the thighs of brass, which is Alexander in Greece to the legs of iron, which is Rome, and then to the feet of iron and clay, which refers to all of the kingdoms that will emerge out of the old Roman Empire and eventually coalesce under the reign of the Antichrist as a kingdom. The statute represents kingdoms, and the most significant point is that it's one statute with one form. We have gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay, but we do not have one, two, three, four, five objects, five statutes. There's one object, one statute, and it represents capital M, capital A, capital N, man. All the kingdoms of the earth are essentially one kingdom, the kingdom of man. They all have their origin in man. They all have the same inner unifying principle, which is man's autonomy and man's greatness and man's dazzling splendor and man's rebellion against and hatred for the Most High God. But no matter how strong each one of the successive kingdoms is through history, all of these kingdoms finally end in this attempt to unite all nations and kingdoms, but like iron and clay, there will be no enduring strength in the final union of the final kingdom of man during the reign of the Antichrist because the principle of sin is never a unifying principle. It's always a destructive principle. Wherever sin is, so here's this great image, this statue, and if all you see is it, and you stand before it, you see man, his hatred for God and his king and his people, man's pride, man's wickedness, man's cruelty, man's alliance with Satan, man's invincibility. Look at him. He stands erect. He stands arrogant and bold and defiant. That's man, the kingdom of man, and the form thereof is terrible. That's the statute. And now the stone represents the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom as the kingdom of God. In various passages of Scripture, Jesus is represented by a stone. For example, Psalm 118, verse 22 states, The stone 
which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. And then the Apostle Peter will pick up on that and apply it to the crucified Jesus in his preaching according to Acts 4, verse 11. And then in the epistle, 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. The stone. And it wasn't of the will and of the power and the agency of man that brought Christ. For like the stone cut out without hands, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary during the reign of the Caesars of Rome. And as soon as Jesus Christ came into this world as the Son of God made flesh, his eyes, like the stone, his eyes were locked in on and he targeted the kingdom of man to destroy it. So through his cross and his resurrection, he destroyed that kingdom in principle. All through the new dispensation, as the gospel goes forth into the world, Jesus Christ, by his word and spirit, he judges and he condemns that kingdom of man. He gathers all of his elect who are born by nature into that kingdom of man. And he translates them out of that kingdom into his own kingdom. And even where the kingdom of man still has a place in the flesh of his people, Jesus Christ will break down the strongholds of that kingdom within. Through his word and spirit, the kingdom of God spreads through the whole earth so that the church is gathered and defended and preserved through the whole of the earth. But what Jesus Christ does in principle through history, He does in complete perfection on the last day when He returns. Then like the stone of the dream, He smites the kingdom of man once and for all as it is on the earth as the kingdom of the Antichrist of iron and clay. He destroys that kingdom. He breaks it into pieces. He casts the devil and all of his demons and all of the reprobate into hell. And he brings all of his elect people into the highest heights of heaven as a new creation. And in that way, the kingdom of God becomes as a great mountain that fills the whole earth. A mountain of love and peace and joy in God eternally. Through the mediatorial work of the man, the man, the Son of Man, the great man, the dazzling man, the bright and excellent man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdom of wicked man so that God is all in all. Image, stone. Because we are united to Jesus Christ and we belong to His kingdom as the kingdom of God, we identify with that stone. I don't mean that in the postmodern literal sense. I mean that in the figurative spiritual sense. We identify as with that stone. And now we have this vivid, unforgettable visual of the antithesis. The antithesis is simply separation between and even hostility between spiritual darkness and light. Represented in the dream by the image and by the stone. The image is the kingdom of man and of Satan and of unrighteousness and darkness and the world and the false church. 
And the stone is the Christ, the light, righteousness, the kingdom and covenant of God. And because we are in union with Christ and belong to his kingdom, we identify with that stone. So we adopt the posture of that stone. We take on the orientation of that stone, the attitude, the conviction of that stone as it targets and as it accelerates toward that image and seeks to smite and break in pieces that image of man. The chief manifestation of our stone identity in Christ is that we seek to destroy the kingdom of man as it's found in our own flesh. And Reformed theology calls that mortification. And as the kingdom of Christ, we and all those who are in Christ live in antithetical opposition to all the sin that's found in that image of man. All the man doctrine and all the man living all the rebellion against God. And as the kingdom of Christ, subjects of it, we understand there may be elect sinners who still belong by nature to that kingdom of man and have yet to be translated out of it into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so we pray for their gathering. We preach the gospel that all God's elect may be taken out of that kingdom into the kingdom of Christ And with us, identify with the stone. The great image, the dazzling image, the kingdoms of man, and then the stone as it moves toward and seeks to destroy. I want to apply the antithesis to sexual abuse, which is rampant. But it's not only a huge problem in the world, and if, well, even if you don't live in the United States, you've probably heard of, you can think of Larry Nasser, the former medical trainer of the USA women's gymnastics team. It's not only a huge problem in the world, and it's not only a huge problem in the Roman Catholic Church, and it's not only a huge problem in popular megachurches that have been rocked by scandals, it is a problem for the true church of Jesus Christ throughout the world and for us. Some wonder if there is more sexual abuse today than there has ever been in the history of the world, And they suggest that in these last days, there really is a demonic influence under the sovereignty of God. Others suggest that there probably is no more sexual abuse today than there has been in the previous generation or generations or even going back millennia to the pedophilia and rampant perversions in ancient Greece and Rome but they say it only appears that there is more sexual abuse today because it's finally being talked about and it's dealt with more consistently as a serious problem. 
Whatever the case may be, it is an undeniable fact that in recent years, the great evil of sexual abuse has been exposed in almost every quarter of every Christian church. And there is at present a proliferation of resources on this subject. All kinds of books, podcasts, lectures, and articles of many sorts for too long, probably too many of us were rather naively and we probably somewhat smugly supposed sexual abuse is a world problem. It's a Roman Catholic Church problem, but it's not a Protestant Reformed Church problem. Too much has happened. Even in the churches where I am a member, for us to be ignorant or naive. Let's look at it in terms of the two main objects in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And let's make that great image of man sexual abuse. And let's make ourselves that stone And then in union with Christ and part of the kingdom of Christ, we move. The image stands. It doesn't move. We move in antithetical opposition to that image, seeking to destroy it so that it's broken to pieces and becomes like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, carried away by the wind so that there's no place found in the church for this great evil. Let's begin with the image. If you don't know anything about abusers, you will make poor judgments. In this area, you need to know that perpetrators of sexual abuse are just like that image. They stand tall and bold and arrogant and selfish and defiant and with a form that is terrible. To stand before one is to stand and tremble. Although that's who the perpetrator of abuse actually is, the abuser presents him or herself as just the opposite of the image. You would think it would be very, very easy to spot an abuser because they are monsters of iniquity who surely appear like and talk like and move like the monsters that they are. And just like this great image can be seen from miles and miles away, you would think that an abuser could be spotted from miles and miles away. Or you would think that an abuser is some creepy-looking figure slinking around on the outskirts, on the fringes of a community, raising red flags to everyone everywhere. In reality, the perpetrator of sexual abuse is usually the friendliest person right in the middle of a community projecting a very kind, friendly, 
compassionate, trustworthy disposition, often an acquaintance, a relative, a babysitter, a coach, a team doctor, a school teacher, a pastor. And this creates an enormous difficulty for a victim because the victim is convinced that if by the grace of God and the power of God they finally come to the point and have enough courage to dare to disclose the fact that they are being abused, the response, whether vocalized or internalized, will be impossible. That teacher, that teacher abused you? Impossible. That man, we love to hear him speak in Bible study. He always has brilliant insights and he always raises so many insightful points that resonate with us. That man, impossible. You're making this up. And why are you making this up? Are you looking for attention? The abuser usually appears a very respectable, friendly, and trustworthy person. But in reality, the abuser stands just like that image. That grandiose image. Bold, powerful, arrogant, invincible, defiant, terrifying. Abusers are predators. Abusers do not just fall into the sin of abuse. Abusers do not walk in love for God. They do not draw out of the wells of the water of salvation by faith. They do not live in daily repentance of their sins. And then all of a sudden, like the flip of a switch, they become a monster in one day and they sexually victimize a young minor. That's not the description of an abuser. It's not even the case that an abuser gets severely intoxicated in one night and in a drunken stupor commits a a terrible sin, the sin of an abuser, the sin that might land him or her on the state's list of registered sex offenders, but it wasn't premeditated. That's not how abuse works. Abusers are predators and they prey on their victims. They are deliberate. They are calculated in their moves. They utilize their position of trust as the greatest resource for exploitation of people. They use grooming tactics over long periods of time. They gradually cultivate relationships by showering affection and praise and love upon the victim so that they let down their guard. They're monsters and they're masters of blurring and then transgressing boundaries of appropriateness. So that in the moment the victim thinks this is weird and this is so uncomfortable, but this is my pastor. This is my school teacher. I must be weird for thinking that this is weird. They're masters of manipulation. 
who will even use God and the Bible and religion to play on the emotions of their victim and draw them in for the satisfaction of control and being able to fulfill their despicable intentions of self-gratification. They are self-constructed predators. Just like that image did not just appear one day if it were real, it had to be constructed. And it would have been an enormous building project from the ground up with all these materials and all kinds of scaffolding and sculptors and masons to build this great image. Well, so an abuser does not suddenly become an abuser one day. They are self-constructed over time. As they develop an iniquity and they build layer after layer after layer of sin upon their heart. And that's important to know for many reasons, but here's just one, one reason. When it comes to repentance, should God ever work the miracle of repentance in an abuser, which He can do, that repentance will need a long period of time to demonstrate itself as genuine. Although the Spirit can sovereignly work repentance in an instant and can change the heart in an instant and can immediately bring forth genuine, obvious fruit, an abuser's entire being has been painstakingly constructed a certain way and it will take considerable time for the penitent abuser to demonstrate that the genuine repentance of heart is working itself out in the deconstruction of all those evil ways and all those layers of sin that characterize the abuser's life for years. The abuser is just like that image. Though projecting an image of friendliness and trustworthiness, the abuser stands tall and defiant. And ordinarily, when the abuser is found out and charged with abuse, he will show just how bold and defiant he is before God and all men with initial denials and deflections and then later with feigned repentance. Sexual abuse is one revelation of the image. The kingdom of man, the depravity of man, the image of the king's dream. The stone. Those who are in union with Jesus Christ, belonging to his kingdom, must take on the identity of that stone that seeks to destroy the image of sexual abuse. First, as that stone, we believe that sexual abuse is an abomination. An abomination is something that is odious to the utmost degree. It generates a loathing, a disgust, a hatred. God 
to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, sexual abuse is an abomination. It may never be covered up. It may never be minimized or excused. It is an abomination and it must be viewed and treated that way. I want to use the language of two other passages to describe this reality. First of all, we have the Old Testament Mosaic Law in Leviticus 18 and 20. And in Deuteronomy 22 verses 13 through 30, which speaks repeatedly of abominations. Specifically in the category of sexual sins. God taught Israel that all these sins were committed by the Canaanites in the land, and that if the Israelites go into the land and they commit these sins and they walk in these sins, the land will spew them out. Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 28. If the church walks in, walks in sexual abuse and will not work to remove it, then God will vomit her out. Because the sin is an abomination. That's especially the Old Testament language. And in the Old Testament, a sexual abuser would have been taken outside of the camp and stoned. The New Testament equal is excommunication for the impenitent. That, first of all, in the Old Testament, but then in the second place, in the context of instruction on the seventh commandment, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. And he's talking about sexual sin as fraud, as theft. Abuse is theft. Now, abuse is murder. It's always murder. And all of the reputable resources on abuse, they call it Murder, as Prof. Inglesma did this morning on spousal abuse and appealing to Lord's Day 40 in its explanation of the Sixth Commandment. Murder. Abuse is murder. But this sin can also be understood as theft. The abuser is the nastiest of thieves who defrauds. And the seriousness of sexual abuse is the devastating damage inflicted so that even if the abuser repents, he can't possibly pay back what he has stolen. The victim, their person was maliciously violated. Their soul was profoundly wounded. Their body was deeply traumatized. Their trust was completely shattered. And I could say many more things, but I don't want to say anything else tonight. I want to be careful and leave it at that. Their life was stolen. They were defrauded. And it's only a wonder of God's grace that can keep one from falling into a deep, dark pit of despair. God hates murder, and God hates fraud, and God says, defraud ye not. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6, Paul continues, 
because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified, the Lord is an avenger, and the Lord will execute vengeance upon impenitent murderers and thieves for the abominable, doubly, triply, abominable sin of abuse. Sexual abuse is an abomination. That's where we must begin. Sexual abuse is an abomination. The poor hurting victims of sexual abuse, they want compassion and they want support. But first of all, they want the church to understand and to teach and to live the truth that this great evil is an abomination. It's only with this conviction that the church will be willing to listen to and take seriously cries or even whimpers for help. It's only with this conviction sexual abuse is an abomination that we will be able to have bowels of mercy and administer proper care to traumatize victims. You see, if we make sexual abuse something less than an abomination, then our depth and duration of compassion and support will diminish proportionately. It's only with this conviction that the church will be able to avoid protecting the abuser and turning the victim into a pariah. It's only with this conviction that the church will deal with abusers and meet out the necessary consequences. It's only with this conviction, sexual abuse is an abomination, that the church and her members will seek to be proactive in enacting preventative measures and seeking to keep the church a refuge of safety. It's only with this conviction that the church will be motivated to do what is right before God rather than taking some action just to avoid a lawsuit or taking some action just because they don't want the humiliation of perhaps media coverage for the mishandling of a case. It's only with this conviction that the church will go beyond policies and procedures on paper and actually administer substantive justice and mercy. It's only with this conviction that the church will avoid taking those who are serious about sexual abuse and labeling them as social justice warriors who are essentially marching in the world's Me Too movement. It's only with this conviction that we will begin to understand victims and begin to understand them should they say something like, this predator violated me and he must be named publicly and they're not expressing cruelty and maliciousness 
and bitterness and spite and vengeance, but they've been the object of an abomination. An abomination. It's affected them for life. And they not only want the abuser and other abusers to know how serious this is, they want to protect others from potentially becoming the prey of this man or woman. They know what it's like to be the object of abuse, to suffer an abomination. They know it, as very few do. They know it, and they can't stand to think about the fact that someone else might become prey to this one. When the church, in union with Christ, as the kingdom of Christ, adopts the identity of the stone, then she will view sexual abuse, as that great image, as an abomination to be smitten and destroyed. Second of three points. As that stone, we will not fall for feigned repentance. Being masters of manipulation who have been living a life of deceit, sexual abusers are masters of sham confessions and feigned repentance. You can find this everywhere. In all Christian churches, the consummate example of a pathetic sham confession by a teary-eyed, guilty church leader was being examined on charges of sexual abuse, it goes just like something like this over and over and over again. I am so profoundly sorry that in carrying out the duties of my office, seeking to be a faithful under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus, I wanted to provide pastoral care to this hurting victim. And instead of using only the scriptures and prayer, I went too far I crossed the line. I made unnecessary physical contact. I'm very sorry. It's a terrible sin. Please forgive me. That's not a confession of sin. That's a confession of virtue. With the exception of of one slip up. A true confession would sound something like this. With great shame, I humbly confess before you my inexcusable sin of sexual abuse, which is an abomination to me and to my God. It was intentional. It was calculated. I am a monster of iniquity. And I do not deserve to live in this world, to live in my country, to live in this church, to live in my family, and to live before God. I deserve to perish everlastingly in the deepest pit of hell because I wickedly used my position that was given to me by the Good Shepherd Jesus Christ. I used it to prey on and systematically destroy another human being. I do not deserve to be trusted by anyone Anywhere, I accept all consequences and shall willingly subject myself to all disciplinary measures. And I will do anything 
to prove to you in the depths of my guilt-stricken soul that I am full of sorrow and I loathe my sin, but I understand if you will never forgive me. And yet I plead that for Jesus' sake, my merciful Savior who died that I might live, you do graciously forgive me. A sincere confession is only the first evidence of genuine repentance. The whole life must demonstrate a 180 degree turn. When the church takes on the identity of the stone and seeks to destroy the image of sexual abuse, it will do everything in its power not to fall for feigned repentance. The church may not proceed hastily and make rash and unjust judgments, but carefully investigate and do justice to all that God sets before them. And sometimes this may become the cause of frustration on the part of victims, but the church must proceed carefully wisely in all these weighty matters. The church will always graciously receive genuine repentance. The church will always graciously grant forgiveness. God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. He may indeed bring repentance to an abuser. He may bring genuine repentance so that an abuser is completely shattered in his heart like that image and broken into pieces and hurting so that the abuser becomes an object who needs now so much tender mercy. God can do that. But the leaders of the church will be very careful not to be played, not to be duped, by feigned repentance. And the more they study sexual abuse and how abusers work, the more they will be able to identify the telltale signs of an abuser's hypocrisy. And that with much prayer and reliance upon the Spirit. <clears throat> Third and finally, as that stone, we are committed to continued growth in understanding. I'm thankful that the churches to which I belong are making a beginning and want to do what is right. We are far from perfect, but the stone is moving and in the right direction. I give thanks to God for a lecture on this subject, a public lecture that was given by Professor Dykstra a few years ago. I give thanks for a recent special issue of the Standard Bearer. The whole of it was devoted to this particular form of abuse. I give thanks to God for my own consistory and my pastor at Granville Protestant Reformed Church. My consistory has given to my pastor a brief sabbatical this summer so that he has time to research 
and develop material on this subject and he wants to do it. When have you heard of that? That a consistory is going to give a man a sabbatical to study sexual abuse. Well, this is the age in which we live and I'm thankful that it's taken seriously. I'm thankful for comments I hear and heard only recently at this past synod talking, hearing rather, a few elders speaking about how they're working, they're growing, they're advancing in this area. I'm thankful for knowledgeable and experienced congregants who are well studied on abuse and they want to help. I'm thankful for our seminary and now I'll answer the last question that was posed at our session this morning when it was asked whether or not our seminary should be giving more instruction to our young students as prospective ministers in the subject of abuse and tell you that this past school year, the faculty spearheaded by the professor of practical theology made a proposal to the theological school committee that our one semester course in poimetics be changed into a two-semester course. Poimenics is the course where the professor teaches the student basically how to be a pastor, how to shepherd God's people. And it's our conviction that there are so many forms of sin right now and so many attacks of the devil, and our pastors are being taxed right now, and elders too, in so many ways, and there's this huge issue rampant issue of abuse in all of its forms that our men coming out of seminary today need more instruction than they've previously been given. And so the Theological School Committee has approved of the proposal so that we have a full year in teaching how to pastor. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for various pastors and consistories of elders who have almost run themselves into the ground with exhaustion, laboring day and night, non-stop on concrete cases, and pray for them. In my judgment, according to my experiences, I see a willingness to learn. While we are growing and learning, we must be committed to continued growth because we've only made a beginning in our antithetical opposition to abuse, specifically now sexual abuse. Getting a good handle on this subject is an enormous undertaking. It's intimidating. Sexual abuse is frighteningly complicated. It involves so many dynamics and then you add to that the emotional toll that it takes on a pastor, an elder, a family member, a friend to have to work with something that's so dark as an abomination. It takes a toll. And it's so time consuming for office bearers, for elders and pastors, for family and friends who are dedicated I suppose I could understand the attitude of some 
who don't want to know anything about sexual abuse. Maybe it's not an issue right now in their church, in their world of experience. Or maybe I could try to understand those who do have sexual abuse somewhere in their world of experience, but they refuse to educate themselves and they're in denial of it all and they want to pretend as if it doesn't exist. I I suppose I can begin to understand that because the reality is so horrible. It's an abomination. But ignorance, especially willful ignorance, is not acceptable. And ignorance leads to poor judgments with the unintended and devastating consequences of enabling perpetrators and damaging victims. Imagine being a victim of this great evil and your own acquaintances don't want to know anything about it because it makes them uncomfortable. And it brings pain to them. And it's an inconvenience and it's an interference to their life. How would you feel about that? The Lord Jesus Christ came right into our world of sin. And He came right into our weakened humanity. We need the love of Christ. Now, when I speak of continued growth and understanding, I am not suggesting that anyone becomes consumed by this topic. So that's all they eat and all they drink and all they think and all they talk about is sexual abuse. It's not healthy. And it will likely make their outlook on all things very negative in a way that's unbecoming of a Christian. Being consumed by it. So God grant grace. But together we need a continued commitment to growth and understanding so that we're able to deal with this great evil in a way that's pleasing to God. What we need is far beyond us. What we are called to do is impossible. And of ourselves we will fail and fail utterly. utterly. But now, in my brief conclusion... I come back to where we've been this whole week. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united to Him by His Holy Spirit. And in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness through His blood for our past sins, our failures, any damage we have done, anything that anyone has done In this field, there's forgiveness in Christ in the way of repentance. And in Christ, there's strength to keep accelerating as a stone of destruction toward that great image of sexual abuse in the service of the kingdom of Christ. And in Christ, there is salvation. Even for abusers. In Jesus Christ, there is salvation for a man 
who not only lived blaspheming the name of God, but lived in systematically persecuting the very body of Jesus Christ. And he is none other than the great Apostle Paul. There is salvation in Jesus Christ for the vilest of sinners. There is. And there's healing for victims. A measure of healing already in this life. The Spirit is good and powerful. And then, a very rich reward of grace and glory. There is hope for us in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we are and who is in us by His Holy Spirit. I thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.